Um, next to me is H.B. Charles. You, you, uh, you haven't uh, seen him up here on the stage yet. H.B. has been the pastor of Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida since uh, 2008. You've, of course, uh, heard from Russell Moore, uh, President of Ethics and uh, Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, my boss, mentor, friend, godfather, uh, Dr. Danny Aiken over here, and uh, I'm Tony. H.B. Charles started pastoring at the age of, what was it, pastor? 17. 17. It's amazing, huh? So did you know what you were doing, Doc? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was very excited about the I couldn't believe they were going to pay me to preach every week. <laughs> um, and that's uh, been my commitment mm. to the Word of God, mm. and it has shaped my, my ministry over the years. Mm. You guys are going to be blessed uh, in the morning as you hear H.B. Uh, talk about the glory of God and diversity. He preached just uh, yesterday in chapel, and it was, it was, uh, we're still talking about it around here. Uh, so J.D. Greer uh, just preached and talked a lot about vocation and how God uses ordinary people in, who work secular jobs, quote-unquote. Um, reaction to that message, points that stuck out to you, points that perhaps you hadn't thought about or things you just want to say, yeah, consider that general reaction. Well, I'll say that uh, his focus, again, on the Holy Spirit is certainly something that is missing in many evangelical churches and certainly within Southern Baptist life. His uh, statement that our Trinity has been the Father, the Son, and the Bible, he was certainly not diminishing the authority of the Bible, but we have to acknowledge that we haven't talked much and therefore we haven't talked well about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I know in my own life, uh, that's been an area where I've needed to give attention and work, so I really did appreciate that. And then his statement that lay people are the point of the spear in getting the gospel out and getting it to the nations, I think is exactly correct. Uh, we'll never be able to train enough ministers, professional ministers, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the first century church did a pretty good job of doing it through just regular, normal, ordinary people. Amen. I liked uh, the fact that he talked about the church uh, diagnosing uh, gifts and setting those, those gifts out. I think a lot of times what happens is we spend a lot of time worried about what is my spiritual gift? What has God uh, called me to do? And, uh, the, and J.D.'s right. You look in the New Testament, you don't really have that problem. Uh, no, nobody is being asked to individually diagnose what his or her spiritual gift is. The church sees that. And how do you see it and know it? is by having people serving, uh, and they're serving in various ways, and then you see the way that, that God is blessing and, and the way that God is, has gifted those people to do that, and the church does that. And I think there's a, a lot of wisdom in that and also a lot of freedom in that. I don't have to sit around and know myself intricately enough, and I've known a lot of people in ministry who didn't know what their spiritual gift was until they'd been doing it for 10 or 12 years. And I, I think that's something to, to keep in mind. Good word, HB, anything other than amen? Yeah, I would, I was just very encouraged by the reminder that it is not what we do that brings about change in our lives or in change in others. It's just a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It brought to my mind Jesus' initial response to the trap question of the Sadducees. In Matthew 22 and 29, he says, you err because you know not the scriptures or the power of God. And you need to know both. You need to know the scriptures, but there needs to be a dependence upon the working of the power of God through his Holy Spirit, if true change is gonna happen. I was encouraged by that. Dr. Moore, you spoke some about the public square. General question. I'm not sure everybody here knows what the ERLC is. What do you do? We do two things. We equip churches to try to think through all the issues 
uh, that have to do with how do you live like Jesus? Uh, how do you make moral choices and, and decisions? So everything from dating and marriage and parenting uh, all the way over to questions of what do you do uh, if your, your grandmother uh, is asking, should I make a living will uh, to say this is what I want, to, this is the sort of treatment I want them to stop doing when I'm, when I'm really at the point of death. Is that right? Is that something Christians should do? Or uh, if, uh, if you, you're having trouble, married couples having trouble getting pregnant, uh, what sort of reproductive technologies are honoring to the Lord and what are not, those sorts of, of questions. So to help equip churches to think through those, those things. And then secondly, to speak from the churches to the outside world. So to speak to government leaders. So we're working a lot on dealing with issues of the persecuted church, uh, dealing with the Supreme Court and the Congress when it has to do with religious liberty issues or sanctity of life issues and so forth, and then dealing with media uh, on all sorts of whenever there's a, a question that comes up about Christianity uh, in public life, media wants to know, you know, what, what does this mean and speak in that arena as well. I know you've told me before you, you have, you've had a number of spiritual conversations with people uh, on, on the Hill that have just sort of surprised you, perhaps sort of Nicodemus-type questions. Um, have you seen just God working uh, in, in the hearts of people that were just like, <laughs> I don't like that guy or I don't agree with his policies, and then you have conversation, you're like, oh, this yeah. guy really needs the gospel, and maybe the Lord's drawn him to himself. God is working uh, magnificently on Capitol Hill right now and, and, and around, uh, but God is working in places, it seems to me, that are the most distant from Christianity and those that are solidly within Christianity, but not that, not the, the places that you would expect that are kind of close to a Christian worldview are, are I, in my experience, the hardest to the gospel right now. But those places that you would look at and you would say, this is an organization or this is a, a, a television network or a, a, a newspaper or whatever that is hostile completely to everything that the gospel is about, there are all sorts of people there who are saying, I've got some questions here, and the Lord's working in their lives that way. And you know, one of the most impressive things that, that uh, conversation that I've ever had was a guy who, in government who came to Christ because he went to this church in, uh, in another denomination where the church had been there for 200 years. George Washington was a member of that church. The denomination had become really liberal, uh, really dismissive of the word of God and they had taken the property away uh, from this church because they were standing on the word of God. And this guy just went as a gawker just to see you know, this church on their last service before they handed the keys over uh, to the denomination. And he said he got in there and these people are singing, they're crying because they've been in that church all their lives, but they were triumphant. And so the pastor stood up and said, these are buildings, they've meant a lot to us, but they're just buildings. The gospel's more important than these buildings. And the guy said he was sitting there thinking, this is crazy because this is primo real estate. And that really started him asking, why are they responding this way? Uh, and as he heard the gospel being preached, he came to Christ. Now he's leading Bible studies and leading people to Christ on Capitol Hill. You know, that's... Two quick questions on voting. You mentioned taxes to Caesar. I've heard some Christians say um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't vote because we're part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Caesar. Uh, what do you say to that person? And then uh, college students who are just starting to vote, advice you would give them? Well, when it comes to, to voting, the people who say that don't 
uh, don't understand the way that the scripture is teaching that you are still in the world, even though you're not of the world. And so when you have, for instance, uh, soldiers who are coming to, to Jesus, uh, Jesus does not tell them you're not a soldier anymore. Uh, even tax collectors. He doesn't say you're not a tax collector. He says you don't defraud. Uh, you, you don't use your, your position to intimidate people or to, or to defraud. And so you think about what the scripture teaches in Romans 13. It says that Caesar has a responsibility to God to act justly. In a democratic republic, that means everybody makes those decisions. So you're actually held accountable to God for the decisions that you are making in the running of the country for the common good. So it's, it's the equivalent of Pontius Pilate saying, I don't want to deal with this. Well, you have to deal with this because it's your job, but you have to do it in a way that's glorifying to God. So not voting in this system of government is a dereliction of your duty to love neighbor. And so that's, that's an important thing to do. And when it comes, when it comes to voting, I think what, what one has to do is to say, there are going to be some issues that are clearly revealed in Scripture uh, that, that we have to uh, understand are clear that are there and we, we're all together on. There are going to be other issues that are not as clear in Scripture where we can come to, we can come to different understandings on uh, because we're, both, we're all motivated by following up. We just have a disagreement about what's the best way to get to that. And we keep those two things distinct and, and separate. And we understand that as we're voting... Uh, well, we don't put our trust in princes, uh, the scripture says. So there's no political party that's going to uh, usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, so we don't put any hope in a political party. We don't, we don't see even our allies uh, on this issue or that issue as people who are our allies on everything. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, nor do we see the people who may disagree with us on some things as our enemies on everything, our opponents on everything. Uh, so we kind of hold it with a little bit of distance and recognize that we're first people of the kingdom of God. Let's think some about diversity in marriage. Feel free also, panelists, to jump in. I'll start with UHB. Uh, so the Ferguson events triggered a number of responses. I heard uh, white Christians uh, saying that our, our response should be two different things, and I heard some, some black Christians also give various opinions about how we should respond to not only Ferguson, but the other um, uh, experiences, you know, uh, after Ferguson. How would you encourage just everybody in general to think through the issue, but I, particularly for uh, white Christians, how, sh how should we respond? How should we react? In my own prayers from my, my own walk with the Lord and my prayer and labor in the church I serve, I often pray that God will help us to be faithful in two areas. First, faithful to declare the truth of Christ. And secondly, faithful to demonstrate the love of Christ. And you need the wisdom of God, the leadership of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit to know how to balance those things because they are not always easy. Um, while Ferguson was going on, our church, which is predominantly black, was in the process of merging with another congregation that is predominantly white. So I did not feel the urgency to have to make soundbite statements of where we were as Christians. Our actions were our statements. 
and it was having an effect in our community without us putting out any press release, protesting, talking. We were, we were living what we claim to believe. At the same time, I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians and I just happened in the providence of God to be in the middle of Ephesians 2. The message I intend to preach in the morning was one of those messages in the thick of that period. And I mentioned Ferguson in the message to my congregation in passing. The theme of the passage, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, is that Christ is our peace. And Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. And he has broken down the wall of hostility. Um, so I, I really think those two factors are important. To faithfully declare the truth of Christ, to faithfully proclaim the word of Christ. Um, I have black pastors that I respect and I would see on social media and other places where they are commenting and I just felt like they put facts about race ahead of truth about the gospel and it grieved me greatly because I don't, there's no hope in politics, protest, or any of those things that are without the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are white pastors and preachers who I respect and I listen to them and there is a sense of empathy and sympathy for neighbors around them who may not look like you and have a different experience who feel there is a systemic thing going on against them. And there is a real grief and sadness, some of it may, maybe standing outside of it, seem illogical and you say, um, wait for the facts and all of these things which are totally true. Um, but there is a, in my community a, just a level of grief where you feel like in a larger society you do not matter. And I think this was just an opportunity for Christians with Christians to just show love and sympathy not agreeing on everything. And I feel like on both sides, we missed an opportunity to both proclaim the gospel and to show the gospel. Um, and uh, that's a grievous thing. It is, just, it is a reminder of how much we, we need the gospel, not just in the world, in the public square, but, but the church needs to be reminded of what we are called to be and do in Christ. You think you guys want to add to that? Well, I think, I think when the scripture tells us that we're part of the body of Christ, it means that when one part of the body of Christ is hurting, the whole body of Christ is hurting. And so when, when, when we have the situations that we have had in our country uh, over the last year, what we do not need are black Christians who are concerned and white Christians who are unconcerned. Uh, this is, this is a, an issue for all of the body of Christ to say, even if we don't agree on all of the facts, as H.P. As, uh, just said, all the facts of any particular case, to say, now wait a minute, why do we have two completely different perceptions of, uh, of what's going on out there? And, and why is it that, that that these are completely different, even in different churches. 
And, and I think part of the reason for that is because we're not together uh, in our churches in the place where we're really being shaped and formed uh, at the level of conscience and at the level of bearing up one another's burdens. So that's really my burden on this is to see we're not going to get anywhere as long as we have churches that are gathered together with people who would be gathered together anyway even if Jesus were still dead. So until, until that dividing wall is being broken down in local congregations and local congregations are signifying, we're not being called together here by uh, our skin color. We're not being called together here by our political party registration. We're not being called together here by our income. We're being called together here by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's when we're going to start to see things changing. Good. HP, I was, uh, yesterday we were, uh, our elders were meeting uh, on a Google Hangout with Tim Keller and uh, 17 other churches, I think, and Keller was talking about race and creating diversity in a congregation, and he said a, a guy told him one time, a black friend, uh, you white people don't think you have a culture. Uh, you, you talk about the black culture all the time and uh, the black church, but you have a culture. And uh, Keller was pushing us to understand that we have biases, we have blind spots if we're, you know, white pastoral leaders. What are some of the biases or blind spots that you have seen um, with predominantly uh, white Christian leaders? Um, and what, what would, how would you encourage us to cultivate diversity, even if we don't have a racial intention? You know, um, what are some ways you, you would say, hey, you guys ought to think about this? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I, but I want to be very careful here. Um, Just me and a few of my friends here. Sure. So we, we merged with a white church. And while all of the cultural tension is going on in my matters of race, it got a lot of attention in the press because this is a racial story of people coming together. But behind the scenes, race, we haven't had one real discussion about race. We've had bigger issues about music style, you know, which I have in my own congregation, predominantly African-American. There's a sweet lady when we're singing hymns, she is bolting them out to the glory of God. And when it's not a hymn, she's sitting there with her hands over her ears. I mean, it's, that's not a racial thing. Um, that's, a, that's a cultural thing. The bigger issue is, for us, has been you have two 100-plus-year-old churches that do things the way they do things. Um, more than anything, what I think has been a blessing to me, which has been a blessing to our church, which has been a blessing to the step of faith we are taking as a church in this merger, is that the more we get out of our comfort zones and get to know each other and get to serve with one another, serve one another, pray. I think a lot of it is that we just, we know what we know. We're used to what we're used to on both sides. I, the part I'm hesitant about is the whole, what would you advise white Christians? Black Christians have their own biases too. And I think it is the more, and the amazing part about it is, our, our children grow up in public schools, those who go to public schools, and you are going to have to predominantly live and learn with people not like you. Most people go to work, and you don't have the luxury of picking who you work with. 
the next cubicle or whatever. You're going, and at the church where we say that we are custodians of life-changing, world-changing message, we intentionally segregate ourselves and don't get to learn from each other, don't get to work with each other. Um, and I just think there needs to be more intentional, strategic ways where we get out of our culture, cult comfort zones, and, and begin to learn from one another, be with one another on both sides. I think that is a need. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Aiken, we're doing a, a several initiatives here at Southeastern, right, with our diversity initiative. You just want to speak to that briefly to some of the things we're trying to do to push back. Well, first of all, I would say that what HP just said is exactly uh, correct and accurate. Trying to be self-critical, I would say to our white brothers and sisters, I think we need to do a better job of listening and not talking. Uh, it's just in our nature to spout off and provide solutions when many times the best thing we can do is just be quiet and listen. I think the other thing that both HB and Russ said was learning to be empathetic, really trying to get inside the skin of my uh, black brothers and sisters to, to see things as they see things within a historical context and as well as a, an immediate context as well. I also think that, again, what HB just said is exactly right. The barriers start falling down and coming down when we live life together. When you're going to school together, you're living life together. When you're working in a particular place, you're living life together, at least on a certain level. When you're involved in athletics, if you're in the military, you're living life together. And so, so much would come down in terms of barriers if we began to live life together to recognize, you know what? We really are all uh, Adam's sons and daughters, and by God's grace, we're now all worshiping the same Savior, and we all have the same daddy. We all have the same father, and by living life together, we then come to understand we really do have so many things in common, and we're alike in so many ways. I, tomorrow, I get to speak on marriage. It doesn't matter whether you are black or brown or white or yellow. Everyone I've ever dealt with in my life when it comes to marriage issues have the same problems. They're dealing with the same questions, having to overcome the same hurdles. Now, again, socioeconomic factors uh, factor in regardless of race. So those are different kinds of questions that come in as well, but they're not racial questions. They're economic and social questions because we all, as men and women, deal with the same issues regardless of the skin pigmentation that we have. So coming together in life gets us down the road, which again, I think is one of the things that's been good for us at Southeastern. We're here as family, so when all of these things happened at Ferguson and then with Eric Gardner and others, um, I never sensed any tension. I think what we sensed around here was heartbrokenness. We did empathize well with each other, and our question was how can we be agents of reconciliation to share what God and his goodness is in the process, and we aren't where we need to be, but is in the process of giving us here it's southeastern. And so I think those are things that if we keep those in our mind's eye, help us begin to live out the kingdom as God intended for it to be lived out now here in this world. That's good. That's good, brothers. I want to finish our time with some non-controversial questions like dating, marriage, and homosexuality. Okay. So uh, let's, move, <laughs> let's move into that arena. Dr. Aiken, you are the guru on dating and marriage and romance and sex and the glory of God. Um, 
He's, he has written a book on it, uh, you know? That, that is what my wife says. So. <laughs> <laughs> you lobbed it out there? I can't you, recover. You flipped it out? <laughs> you so, have a question? Yes, dating. So, a lot of non-married people here. I haven't dated in 37 years, <laughs> so I don't really know much about that. But anyway, go ahead. Just act like you do for a moment. Okay. Uh, indulge us. A lot of students here, probably not married. What advice do you, how can they glorify God in dating? They can glorify God in dating by being the man of God and the woman of God that he has saved them to be. In other words, they really do need to work harder at not trying to find the right person, but be the right person. And when they are being the right person, then they are in the position for God and his providence to bring into their life someone that will be attracted to that kind of good, godly, right person. And so they need to really be focusing more upon themselves in terms of their conformity to Christ than they do, well, I just got to get out there and find that right gal or that right guy. That, that's where you trust in God's providence and God's sovereignty. My wife and I, the, that we got together is a miracle of God. She, want, she grew up in a children's home. One summer, she happens to work at a uh, army base in Atlanta, just happens to meet my aunt who falls in love with her, and one weekend brings her out to her home, says, I got this really pretty girl you need to come meet. And I'm like, Aunt Linda, I don't do blind dates. Uh, that stuff doesn't work. She said, well, that's fine. You can waste a really good-looking girl that's coming to my house. So I said, nah, all right, we'll check it out. And 37 years later, I'm still checking her out. And it's been good. We're thinking about doing arranged marriages at our church. Are you a fan of that, Dr. Moore? No? Depending on who's doing the arranging. <laughs> Here's a serious question. Should, should, a, should a guy or a girl date um, someone that they don't find physically attractive yet, but they're, they're a godly person? This, this is a question on the John Piper Desiring God podcast I listened to last night. What, what, what did he say? Uh, Chandler a answered it, actually. <laughs> It was, it was I don't know, but I mean. <laughs> nobody want to jump in. You on know that. they can't I, hear I you, right? <laughs> if somebody's here, they you know they, they have this this girl. She's really godly, beautiful on the inside. Oh. But they're, what, what do you? What do you? What do you, do you do you do you hang out with them in hopes that you might eventually find them attractive? Because that's one of the arguments that over time godliness is more attractive. And you well, know. I do agree with that absolutely. I, I I can think of people in my own life that uh, I, I'm not married to because I'm married to Charlotte. But I've met women that the first time I saw them, I did not think, "Wow, that is like a really good-looking lady." I just I didn't think that. There she is. She's female. Okay. But as I got to know her, she was such an absolutely radiant, gorgeous, beautiful, godly person. Over time, what you just said absolutely happened. They became more attractive to me. Now, not attractive for me in a sensual sense. I just think, and I can think of a dozen women off the top of my head right now, that I just think they are beautiful beautiful women and they're beautiful because of what they are on the inside in fact I'll just say this to the ladies that are here uh, if you're beautiful on the inside you do become more beautiful and radiant on the outside and if you are drop-dead gorgeous but you're just not very pretty in here 
over time, most men will find you much less attractive, even to the point that there's nothing about you that they find attractive on any level. What you are in here really does impact what you are out here. And I think that's true of men as well, but certainly with men being such creatures of sight and so on, it does have that effect. You know, a lot of times when I find guys who are saying, well, I just don't find her attractive. Uh, a lot of times this is, the problem is not with her, the problem's with him in trying to understand what is attractive. Uh, what, what the scripture uh, teaches in First Peter 3, that, that quiet dignity of the heart, that, that daughter of Sarah. And so sometimes I find that this is a, a kind of cop-out with a, a guy who has, who has really, his, his taste for attractiveness has been so shaped by Madison Avenue and by this very unrealistic understanding of what uh, of what the beauty of womanhood is, uh, that he needs to work on his own heart and life. Because if what if what he is looking for is simply what it is that captivates him hormonally at that particular moment, well, that's not going to last. You you need to make sure. And what I I say to young guys that I'm mentoring is, you don't need to find a 20 year old woman that you can find attractive, that's easy. You need to find a 75-year-old woman that you can find attractive. So when you find that woman that you say, this is a woman that I can age together with and I can find beautiful when she is 85 years old in the nursing home with me. Now that's a woman you need to pursue. And if you say, well, she doesn't meet my standards of attractiveness uh, right now that I have, well, it may mean that, that you have standards of attractiveness that need to go and you need to ask God, God cultivate for me the sort of, uh, the sort of uh, spirit that can, that can really recognize what I've got here. And I think that's important too. Dr. Aiken, you've been married a long time. Have you ever had an argument with your wife? If so, who won? Oh, we've had, um, we've had a number of arguments, and uh, I always win because I let her have her way. <laughs> no, I don't always let her have her way, but yes, we've had arguments. Yes, we've had a number of arguments, some at low volume, some at high volume. Uh, if you're normal, you're going to have arguments. That's simply reality. The issue is, what do you do when the arguments come? And we have had, since we were married, and we got married very young, 21 and 19, a determination to work through the arguments. Sometimes we work through them in minutes, sometimes in hours, sometimes in days. And yes, there have even been a couple of times in our marriage where it just seemed like, my goodness, we just can't get back in the groove. And it went for several weeks. But the idea of quitting, walking away, throwing in the towel, never even one time entered our mind. We were determined that we would work through them. And, and I'd say this, Tony, for us, I often say it this way. In theology, compromise is a really bad word. In marriage, it's a really good word. And so we have often found the way to navigate through our differences and disagreements. Do we do either one of us get everything we wanted? No. But did we both get something as we loved each other and gave in that we could be satisfied with? Yes. And that's good. Does romance really get better as you Absolutely. get Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I say the romance, a lot of that thing is sex. No, I'm just saying there is now in my life at the 30, almost 37-year mark, a, a warmth, an intimacy, 
a closeness uh, that I did not even know existed. And if it's this good when I'm 58 and she's 56, I can't wait if God will allow us to live to be 80 to see how sweet it can be then. So, yes, it does get sweeter. I can't wait to hear you at 80 years old. It could be scary. (laughs) When the the filter's off. No filters. (laughs) Dr. Aiken. Dr. Moore, uh, nothing is more contentious these days than the issue of homosexuality. Um, We could spend an entire conference on this. how, what, do you, what do you tell this group tonight just about how to respond? Some think we talk about this too much. Some think we don't talk about it enough. Some think we communicate it the wrong way. Just, just some, some advice for us as we try to, to talk to our friends, as we try to represent Christ in culture. Well, the first thing we need to do is to say, why does the Bible tell us we have sexuality? What is sexuality for? And the scripture is very clear about that from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way over to Ephesians 5, all the way down to Revelation 21 and 22. So that uh, sexual uh, expression uh, within marriage, man and woman, as Jesus says, was created from the beginning, is pointing to something else, and that's to the gospel of Christ and his church, united in one one flesh, one, one head and body together. And so you, you're either going to have a sexuality that is preaching that gospel, communicating that gospel, or you're going to have a sexuality that is preaching some other gospel. Uh, and, and that other gospel is never going to satisfy and it is going to lead to, uh, it's going to lead to, 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 to difficult, difficult uh, consequences. So I think the way that we address this is by first understanding why sexuality matters, not just, well, this is moral and this isn't, uh, but why is that the case? And then coming in and recognizing and knowing that uh, we are the people who are speaking with truth and with grace at the same time. Romans 3 says that God is, the, is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul talks about that in relation to homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, it says, so, some, some practice these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you, and you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. Both of those two things have to be held together all the time. So I think that w- that's what that means is that we we both talk about uh, God's standards for sexuality and then we talk about those who are tempted at these particular points or who may have a background uh, of a time that's well beyond temptation in which, uh, in which someone is pursuing uh, a, a life lived uh, in this way to come in and say, what does it look like for you to be a faithful follower of Christ? And so we don't act as though this is something that, that is shocking, that we can't uh, talk about within the confines of the church. And, and uh, we don't act as though someone who says this is some kind of a freak. No, 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 no. This is, this, this is what the gospel's for. The gospel's for, for broken people. The gospel's for sinners. The gospel is, for, is not coming for those who are well. And so, but then we turn around and say, well, then what does it mean to live faithfully uh, to, to in, in the way of Christ? That's going to look different in different situations. I have uh, some friends, one that I was just uh, talking to today, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian uh, activist for years and years. She's now married uh, with children. I have many other friends uh, who uh, I can think of right now who are same-sex attracted, who have no attraction, even to this day, to the opposite uh, sex. And they will say that they're tempted every single uh, day, but... What, what do they have? They have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that temptation. So we don't act as though 
what salvation means for anything, for anything, is absence of temptation uh, or an absence of a fight. If you've got the absence of a fight in your life uh, on, on some matter or other, then that only means you're yielding to temptation. Uh, if you're following Christ, then you've got some area of your life, at least one, where you are in this intense battle, what Peter talks about, uh, those passions of the flesh that war against the soul. For some people, that is what they call polyamory. Uh, multiple uh, people of the opposite sex. For some people, it's homosexuality. For some people, it's any number of things, but we have the power of the Spirit to, to fight, which means that we have to say a lot of people in our churches who are same-sex attracted assume that what salvation looks like for them is some of them assume, well, that person's saved, and yet that person is still battling this. That must, means, that must mean that, that it, salvation isn't working. No, 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 that's not what, salvation's not a prosperity gospel on this issue or any other issue. And some people think, well, this means that I'm going to die alone. Uh, well, if you're in the body of Christ, nobody in the body of Christ dies alone. We're in a household, brothers and sisters, and we need to make sure that we have a community within the household of God where we really are what the Bible says we are, family. Not just a place where we get together and sing and listen and then go back to our families and some people go back to, to their houses alone. That's great. Addition to that. Guys, will you give our panelists a, a big hand tonight for uh, joining us? Just stay right here. We're going to pray. Thank you, Dr. Moore, for speaking tonight. Uh, in the morning, we'll hear from H.B. Uh, Charles and then uh, Dr. Aiken, uh, host of Breakouts tomorrow, which you're really going to enjoy. Um, we will have a very important announcement coffee will be between 8.15 and 8.30. We'll be out there served um, by our friends at Back Alley Roasters, the best coffee around. And uh, we're going to start in here at 9 in the morning, okay? So uh, enjoy your evening. Let's pray and uh, give God thanks for, uh, for a good evening. Father, we do give you glory tonight. We pray that you would help us to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Thank you for... Jesus and the new life we have in him. Thank you for your word, Father, for speaking it to us, for not leaving us in the dark. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for residing in us, empowering us uh, for mission. And we pray that you would uh, make us faithful in this life, in whatever arena of life you put us in. May we do all things for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.